0: Okay, thank you. Uh I feel like a broken record here at first, but if uh it's spotty here, I apologize. Uh we live in the middle of nowhere and we have one option as far as internet, and it works good with uh you know sending emails and checking websites. But with something like Zoom, it's a bit more challenging with a video stream. So um I apologize if it's spotty. If I get completely cut off, just continue on without me. And um, but you could say a silent prayer even now that maybe it would be sustained. Uh Not that you need to hear from me, but um, make it go more smoothly, perhaps. Um, In praying for revival, you know, we're asking for God to do an extraordinary work, not something ordinary, but I think it would be a mistake for us to think that the extraordinary work bypasses all ordinary things in the church. So prayer, of course, is an ordinary thing, meaning it's a regular duty. But extraordinary prayer would mean something like what we're having, uh, where it's sustained day after day after day, month after month, and also where there's a fervency in it. And so I I think what we're doing is in one sense already an answer to that side of the equation. Um, Yes, we need to continue in it and not say, okay, well, we can check that box. But I, I do believe that our prayer times with all of you and this many people, I know there could be much more, but across the world is, is an answer to that prayer for God to do something extraordinary. This is extraordinary. Um, but another aspect that I think that we need, as far as extraordinary, is has to do with another instrument that is so often used in revival, in addition to prayer, and that is the preacher. And so today I'm going to shamelessly ask for prayer for myself as a preacher and for brother Rick and for other ministers here that are on the, the, uh, the call and each minister in your own churches, um, the elders, uh, I don't think we could expect a revival without God touching the ministers in an extraordinary way. Um, so, and I'm not speaking from any kind of an ivory tower here, to anyone else. Um, This applies to me and I know it does, but preaching must change and my preaching must change. Um, It needs to go beyond just, well, was it well exegeted? Um, Did you exposit the text well? Did you preach the word rather than your own ideas? Uh, Did you spend the time during the week to, to really labor with the text? Um, yes, we need all of that, of course, um, but there's something more than we need, more that we need besides that, which is something we can't do, something that each minister can't produce, you don't learn it in a class. It's not something that you can uh, flip a switch and make it happen, or just spend a little more time and then it will be there. This is I'm talking about the Holy Spirit blessing and anointing the preaching to make it powerful. So yesterday, uh, Stephen spoke of power, and as he was speaking about it, I thought, yeah, that's, that's a, a very good preparation for what I would be talking about today, because I want to talk about that, the power for our pastors and the, one who, the ones who, who preach the word, that um, there's two aspects of power, and there's two, two important things there that need to happen in the life of each minister. One is the qualifications themselves the godliness that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and hinted at in other places in the pastoral epistles. But ministers, we must be godly. We must be examples to the flock and have a moral credibility with our people, but also with outsiders. Um, In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we've got the job description but unfortunately, too often, as you may well know, sadly, uh, those qualifications are sort of look like as, looked at as suggestions, or they may be treated like the law. You know, the law is this high standard that no one can reach, and this purpose is to burden us with our sin and to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. People can treat 1 Timothy 3 like it's that, like that's its purpose, like we're not really meant to live up to these things. These are just supposed to make us feel terrible or make us feel humble and how far short we fall. I don't think that's the intent of First Timothy 3. So let me read the passage. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. Now That doesn't mean perfect, of course. No one is. No minister ever has been except the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not perfect. Being above reproach simply means that when other people look at your life, they cannot really spot uh, glaring inconsistencies and problems. And even with a spectrum of your life, and they say, uh, this this man has it together. Um, so he's above reproach he's the husband of one wife he's temperate prudent respectable hospitable he has people in his home he's he's not afraid to do that he's able to teach um he can communicate the word of god and get it across to people um he's not addicted to wine or pugnacious you know he's not quarrelsome um he's gentle peaceable free from the love of money, one who manages his own household. Well, um, you all are frozen. Can anybody hear me? Are you still hearing me? Okay. Yes.
1: You yeah, are. Okay. Yes, we, we, hear yes you. we hear you.
0: I just wanted to make sure a lot of your faces are freezing <laughs> on me. So I thought, Oh, I, I think I'm frozen in time here. You're good. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll continue. Um, So he manages his own household well. His children respect him. Uh, He's not too harsh. He's not too lax. Uh, He keeps his children under control with all dignity. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So look at that list, and I I think that's what each pastor is supposed to be. And notice what isn't there it doesn't say he has to be funny or he needs to be gregarious, he needs to be musically talented, he needs to be a CEO, he needs to be a program manager, or any of those other things that many people expect a pastor to be those things aren't listed there these are character issues they're not they're not suggestions they're they're requirements so that's the first thing that has to be the case we have to have ministers in our pulpits who meet those qualifications and frankly let me just say if if they don't they should step down Um, or the church should come and say you know um, I don't think that you're ready for this and and look for a new one it is better to have no one in the pulpit than an unqualified man in the pulpit. Uh, it doesn't mean that over time the man cannot get things in order by the grace of God and be qualified, but these should be taken seriously. Uh, secondly, is the powerful preaching. Jesus spoke with authority, uh, not as the scribes, and they were amazed by that. They sensed the difference. Um, Peter and Acts 2 preached boldless, boldly and fearlessly. And very directly to the people, um, laying the crucifixion on them as they were guilty of this. And the response was amazing. 3,000 people were converted. And we need that kind of preaching. We can't make those results happen. But we need that kind of bold directness with love, of course. Um, These were people that were blamed (laughs) by Peter for crucifying Jesus, and yet they responded in that way, what must we do? And he told them to repent. Um, In Acts 14.1, we read this interesting statement regarding Paul and those with him. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. So they spoke in a manner uh, that led to many people believing I, I don't think that's something we can um s- study so to speak because we weren't there it's not a technique they used I, I believe that is a that's coming from above um in first corinthians 2 4 through 5 paul said my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom like worldly wisdom and using the language of the you know, the philosophers and so forth, uh, the, the um, eloquence that they tried to perfect in his, today, in his day, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's what we need so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Um, one of the things that was particularly evident in George Whitfield's preaching was power. Uh, he was he was not like the Church of England counterparts in his day, many of whom were unconverted. He preached very fervently, with great impassioned pleas, and he melted people. His preaching melted them. And that's what we need today. We need power. We need power bestowed on high on our pastors, power for godliness in their lives, and also uh, you know, in demonstrating to the church and to the outside community that God's blessing rests upon this man um, for his office, but also power and preaching that he he all of all of them who are called by God would preach with authority, would be bold, would be specific when dealing with sin, not general, in a convicting way, in a probing way that presses through all the obstructions and all the the barricades and gets right to the heart at the the very core. Um, Unashamed of anything God has said in his word, no shame whatsoever, preaching that humble sinners and exalts Christ. Um, I would ask your prayers for, for the Lord to do that for me and for him to do that for these other ministers who are on the call here. I'm sure they would, uh welcome your prayers in that regard as well. And of course, pray for your own ministers and others that you may know. Um, thank you.